Welcome to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Elise Dorita. Next week, we will be away at our 2018 PBI Annual Conference. We hope to see you there. Tune back in on March 1st for a new episode. Today's guest is Michelle Movahead from McCarter in English. Michelle spoke to us from Newark, New Jersey, where she is based. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Michelle. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. So to get started, can you tell us about your background and why you decided to become a lawyer? Sure. Um, so after college, I did political organizing in South Central Los Angeles and then out in Brooklyn. Um, and I was actually in Brooklyn when September 11th happened and then went right into doing disaster relief um, for several months thereafter. And sort of the total of those experiences of, of organizing in marginalized communities, um, of working with communities generally, and then sort of helping people navigate social services systems, I really started to feel like the most useful way I could help people um, who are oppressed and marginalized is by becoming a lawyer. Um, so I, I went to do an internship to sort of figure out if I was right. <laughs> um, I went to go do a, like a post-college internship at a legal services organization and was totally hooked and, and realized that's what I wanted to do. And then I got to go to law school. That's amazing. Where did you go to law school? I went to Fordham. Oh, that's really interesting um, that you really like stuck in New York and you really loved it. I guess you're one of those people that New York kind of just <laughs> captivates them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I love New York. It was the first place that I really felt like I um, belonged. And becoming part of the communities in Brooklyn where I was doing the political campaign and kind of getting to know the city through disaster relief, like, it's, it's my home, and I love it. That's great. So what sparked your passion for pro bono and access to justice? I know we kind of just touched on it a little. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any one particular thing that sparked me wanting to work on um, getting services to low-income people. I mean, I think... I really, in one way or another, have been involved in providing services to marginalized communities for, for most of my life. I mean, it's just, I think at this point, kind of who I am. Right. So um, we're going to kind of touch on how it's this has been in your life by talking about your experiences from your time as a public interest social justice lawyer. Um, can you talk about some of your experiences and walk us through your career history? Um, sure. Do you want to start with like law school experiences or as a practicing attorney? I mean, either it's all part of your journey to uh, kind of get where you are now. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So I, uh, I loved law school. I had a really wonderful couple of scholarship programs that were incredible in fostering a, a sense of community around public interest and social justice work. So I was a Stein Scholar and got to do a bunch of really, really incredible public interest projects as part of my law school curriculum. Um, and I was a Crowley Scholar in international human rights, so got to participate in designing and executing a human rights fact-finding mission to look at educational segregation of Roma children in Romania. Um, and then my third year, I had the great good fortune of participating in Fordham's Housing Rights Clinic, which was, a really, which was yet another way to sort of get involved in helping people um, navigate complex systems that aren't really set up to help them, particularly without a lawyer. So all of that was really incredible, and I loved each of the different things I had gotten to do. 
Um, I also worked with some great organizations as an intern, and I um, helped start the current, um, the, I think it's current, the If, When, How chapter at Fordham. So really was was able to be super involved and connected in, in mobilizing and supporting a lot of social justice uh, work, which was amazing. Um, and then after law school, I went and got to clerk for um, an amazing judge in the Eastern District of New York, uh, which was another phenomenal learning opportunity, um, not just because my judge is amazing, but because it was really a window into um, litigation at very high levels and about very, very nitty-gritty issues. Um, then after clerking, I went to the Center for Reproductive Rights, which was another amazing learning opportunity, um, and worked on a bunch of different types of cases, um, the goal of which was to expand, protect, and defend women's access to constitutionally protected health care, um, and specifically to abortion care. I was there for about six and a half years, which was amazing. I got to do human rights lobbying at the United Nations. I got to participate in pieces in the, from all over the country um, and work with some really incredible and talented litigators doing incredibly important work, uh, which was phenomenal. Um, and then I moved to another phenomenal legal services organization, the New York Legal Assistance Group, where I was in the special litigation unit, um, using the law as a tool to affect systemic change a little closer to home, so for low-income people in the five boroughs. And then I came to McCarter. So how did you get to McCarter in English? Why did you join the firm? <laughs> so I had... Uh, so I had moved um, from New York City, from Upper Manhattan, um, out to New Jersey, and I was sort of constantly struck by, I am constantly struck by how much of a difference the river makes, um, because although things are far from perfect in New York City, there is much more access to services for low-income people. I mean, the public transportation infrastructure alone uh, is, is it just a huge, it's a game changer. So out here in New Jersey, there's far less access to services, there's far less access to, to justice. Um, among other things, you have to have a car to navigate much of the state. So I really wanted to, I, I just keep, I feel like I just keep trying to work closer to home to make a difference. Um, and I was really fortunate that this position opened up and I sort of thought about it a little bit. I, I've never worked in a for-profit setting before. I wasn't sure how that move was going was gonna to go, but meeting the people here um, and learning about the firm's historical commitment to the city of Newark, to the state of New Jersey, and then expanding out to all of the cities where we have offices, I thought it was worth taking the risk. And I, I love it. That's great. Could you tell us a little more about the firm? Um, you mentioned that there were like multiple offices. Um, talk about their practice areas. Sure. So we have nine offices uh, from as far north as Boston to as far south as Washington, D.C., um, and then a, a number of points in between. Uh, we have 12 practice groups, but it's actually, I think our practice is, is far broader than just those 12 practice groups. I mean, of course, I can speak with the most comfort about the, the pro bono practice, uh, but we really, our lawyers cover basically every, every area of work. So let's talk about your role at the firm. How do you spend your time? 
That depends on the day. <laughs> um, I So I litigate and carry a caseload in addition to uh, my administrative responsibilities. So there are some days where I sort of walk around talking to people about pro bono and how they should do it, and they very nicely listen to me. <laughs> and then there are days where I get to be in court or in jail with a client or um, in talking to other practitioners about ways that we can more effectively use the resources that are available to really make an impact for people who need that. Is there anything you wish you could be doing more of? I wish I had more time (laughs) in a given day. Um, I feel like there's so much work and there's so much opportunity. Um, I just, I really, I, I feel like what I get to do is amazing and energizing and I, I just wish I could do more of it. So you mentioned how uh, this is kind of a new experience for you working in a firm versus your past experience kind of in public interest. Are there any surprises since you started your position? Yes. <laughs> I So I think the biggest surprise is probably the one that's like almost the most superficial. So I am used to, so from all of my years working in nonprofits, like I got very, very good at figuring out who would deliver the supplies, like the office supplies, and when they would be ordered. And then I would make friends with the person who did the delivering. And so they would always stop and say hi to me on the way to go restock the various supply cabinets. And then I would go steal all of the office supplies and hoard them. <laughs> but I shared, I shared. But, you know, you never, you never know when you're going to get the next shipment of pens. Um, and so it was, I mean, one of the biggest surprises to me is coming to a firm where there are these incredible resources available and I can say, I need a pen. And there are not only, there's not only one room of pens, there's multiple rooms of pens and people will help me figure out just the right pen that for me, for the given project that I'm working on. Um, so just that infrastructure and that support and those resources is really, has been an incredible surprise. It's great. Uh, so what have been your biggest lessons learned so far since you've been in this new position? I'm not really sure how to answer that question because I feel like I'm still on a learning curve. I mean, I've been here for about a year and a half, and I think getting to know the firm took, you know, is taking, will take um, sort of a lot of time. I think one of the things that's been the most gratifying is that you know, nobody has said no to me. Um, I feel like I propose these crazy ideas, like let's run a naturalization clinic in our Newark office on a monthly basis, and we'll just bring people here, and then we'll meet them in the conference room and help them with their forms. And people not only say yes, um, but they come and they provide services, and um, it's just it's been really amazing. So I think. Um, being sort of willing to take the risk and ask for people to do something that seems a little crazy has been, you know, something I've had to get comfortable with, but has also just been incredible. So kind of with that change of, you know, everyone kind of welcoming these ideas, what do you consider to be your biggest success so far? Um, I think seeing people try new things. I think seeing people be willing to take a risk has been an incredible success. So we have attorneys who are open to pro bono who sort of hadn't found their right fit um, be willing to go do something completely different. I have There's one attorney up in our Boston office um, who had mentioned sort of casually to me that he'd be interested in providing services to veterans. And so after, uh, you know, 
series of conversations to try to figure out what kind of time he had available and what the resources were and who we could partner with. He's now staffing on a very regular basis um, an intake at a VA up in the suburbs of Boston with a wonderful organization called Veterans Legal Services, uh, which is a project that sort of materialized around his interest and seeing him be willing not only to go and do this, um, but then bring other people with him was incredible. I mean, similarly, you know, the naturalization clinic that we run in Newark, seeing people turn out um, to come provide services and to do it month after month after month has been incredibly gratifying. That definitely sounds like a success story, kind of being able to take this idea and bring it to fruition to kind of, it's definitely something completely bigger, I guess, than he probably first imagined. So do you have any tips for other lawyers who may be transitioning from public interest legal services organizations to law firms? This is kind of a common thing in our field. Um, I don't think I've been here long enough to have tips. (laughs) Um, I think, you know, the, the most helpful and reassuring thing for me has been knowing that I have the total support of the firm management. I mean, like I said, I feel like I ask for these crazy things, and not only do people say not, not only do people not say no, but they come out to support me and to support the pro bono work and to support each other in in carrying out sort of the shared firm value of providing services to those in need. And I think being unafraid to to make those asks is really, really important. That's great, especially um, we've talked about kind of when you have the backing of the top people in your firm and the management, it really gets people to do pro bono. Like, it's obviously great to have the support, but it also gets people interested because if someone, you know, you admire is doing this or supporting this, it makes you want to support it too. Mm -hmm. So PBI recently spent some time with McCartney English when the firm hosted a clinic in a box with CPBO. Can you tell us about the clinic and the firm's experience? Sure. I mean, we really felt like our role in that clinic was to support, to train and support uh, the work of in-house counsel at at one of the firm's clients. Um, And that's always an incredibly rewarding experience. I mean, helping people who want to do good sort of put the pieces in place so that they can execute on that that impulse is always really, really satisfying. Uh, So that clinic provided uh, services in the form of doing wills for people who'd been um, affected by cancer in one way or another. Um, our One of our amazing partners did the training along with one of our associates and then provided support for the in-house attorneys to see clients, to help them with their documents, and to, to move things forward to accomplish the client's goals. That's great. So what do you find works best to incentivize and motivate attorneys at the firm to get involved with pro bono? We've kind of talked about a couple of ways, um, like your story about the, the Boston uh, attorney. Mm-hmm. So I think without exception, the thing that incentivizes and motivates people is seeing the firm management not only saying you should be doing pro bono, but doing it themselves. So, I mean, it's, it's incredible. So our executive committee, I think, almost completely has participated in pro bono in the last year. I mean, the managing partner of the firm has come repeatedly to the naturalization clinic to provide services, and he's vocal about it and telling people it's fun, you should come do it, it's really important, Um, and I think there's no substitute for that. I mean, the chair of the firm does pro bono and tells other people they should be doing it too. Um, So that's that's the ballgame in a lot of respects. 
And that is just a question of finding people their fit and helping them figure out how to fit it into their lives. It's amazing. So um, I read this piece that you recently co-authored in the New Jersey Lawyer called Representing Refugee Children, the Life-Altering Impact of Pro Bono Work, which was uh, kind of very moving and it was definitely informed me on things I didn't know about, especially very timely things. Could you discuss this article um, and that aspect of the firm's pro bono work? Sure. So, um, so the firm has been involved in providing services to unaccompanied children, uh, to unaccompanied immigrant children for years, well before I got here. Um, and one of the things that was really gratifying is to see the sort of reinvigoration of that area of our practice over the last year or so. Um, I think you know, it was really motivated by a sense of compassion on the part of our lawyers for these children who are making this terrifying and terrible journey thousands of miles, right? I mean, that's the, the fun, there's something fundamentally devastating about the fact that for some families, sending a child alone on a dangerous journey thousands of miles away is the best option for that child's well-being. That's just, that's soul-destroying, right? That that's a reality for thousands and hundreds of thousands of families. The firm has been incredibly involved in this area. So we've taken on more cases than I can count um, over the last several years. And then just last year alone, we really tried to ramp up and recommit to providing services to these folks. So the article really comes out of that longstanding commitment and wanting to say to everybody in New Jersey, this seems like an area of practice with high barriers to entry, but it's not. Um, there's support available. There's mentoring available. There's models available. I mean, certainly kids in need of defense makes it as easy as it can be. Um, and and it's so, no matter how scared a lawyer is, no matter how intimidating it seems to a lawyer to represent a child in state court or at the asylum office or an immigration court, it is so, so much better than a child having to go through that alone. In the article, I think it was um, 60% of children were unrepresented, which is obviously a, a, a huge statistic. Oh. And even, yeah, it's, it's really, it's, I mean, it's unbelievable. It's inhumane. I even had to do like a double take when I was reading the article because there's a beginning story of the article, a little spoiler alert. They talk about a brother and sister, and um, at some point the sister has to, well, they decide we're going to leave the country because one of the gang members tells the sister she's pretty, which means she could be in danger to being like a forced girlfriend. And I was like reading this article, and then I'm like, wait, how old was she? And she was only 12, and I couldn't even imagine making the journey and then going through court and then having to tell stranger my whole story and why I was scared and probably in a different language. And um, it's right. great that you guys are there kind of helping these children because it's hard enough to be a child and especially coming <laughs> from running from this. Um, right. It must be even more terrifying. Right. I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think every attorney should be at least trying to alleviate some of the suffering in that regard. And it's an incredible privilege to get to, to get to do it, frankly. And we're very lucky to have such a wonderful partner organization and, and mentorship available through kind. So this kind of segues us into our next question. What motivates and inspires you? So this is a big question. <laughs> um, and I'm not actually totally sure how to answer it because it's such a big question. Um, I, I mean, I think this is, 
I think getting to bring all of these resources that the firm makes available uh, for pro bono work, getting to bring those resources to bear um, in service of low-income people, particularly in areas where there really aren't a lot of options, um, is, is an incredible responsibility and an incredible privilege. Um, I really, I feel responsible to, to use these resources in an effective and efficient way. Um, and I, I just feel incredibly lucky to have all of this support and all of these people who want to provide services. I just, it's, that's inspirational in and of itself. And then wanting to do a good job is <laughs> it's its own kind of motivation. That's an amazing sentiment. So we mentioned earlier that in addition kind of to managing all the pro bono, you also manage your own caseload. What are some additional examples of pro bono matters that have been particularly meaningful to you over the course of your career? So last summer, I had the great good fortune of working on a case for a detained asylum seeker. We were co-counsel to Brooklyn Defender Services, which was an incredible experience in and of itself. Um, so we got to represent a young man who had experienced all kinds of ill treatment and torture at the hands of the government in the country he'd fled, um, and who had made a really very harrowing journey, like a almost a year-long journey to get to the United States. And he came to the United States because he thought this was a country where he could be free, where he could make a life um, and move forward with with building a home and a future for himself and his family, um, including his young child. So getting to work on his case um, and, and having the experience of going to the jail regularly to conduct the interviews, to prepare the statement, to help him understand what was coming uh, was, was a life-changing experience. I'm get, sitting in the courtroom with him when the judge decided that decided to grant asylum and announced it was uh, just one of the most moving experiences I've ever had as a lawyer. So that, that in and of itself uh, is, is just, I, like I almost don't have words to talk about how important that experience was to me. Uh, getting to help somebody move forward with their life after um, going through a long period where it seemed like there could be no future for him. Uh, was was a huge privilege. And then a, a while ago, I had a similarly moving experience in a totally different context when I had the privilege of representing the last abortion clinic in the state of Mississippi um, in a challenge to a law that was uh, that the complaint alleged was designed to ban abortion effectively in the state. And getting to stand up on behalf of the clinic and getting to articulate the claims of women to their autonomy was a phenomenal experience. And hearing, reading the, the judge's decision um, granting the preliminary injunction that kept the clinic open was, uh, was just a phenomenal, phenomenal moving experience of, of really being able to use all of my legal training and all of the work and everything um, to really make a concrete difference. I mean, what an incredible, what an incredible privilege that is. That is an amazing story, especially because, I mean, it's not just you're helping the clinic, you're helping so many women by keeping that clinic open. Um, and especially because you said it's the last one. So um, with limited right. options, it's definitely um, helps basically so many women across that state uh, to get that the care that they need. So what is on the horizon for the firm's pro bono program? So many things. <laughs> <laughs> we have, uh, I mean, we have in every office um, projects in the pilot phase that I think will probably launch into much bigger 
programs uh, relatively soon. I mean, I think we're going to start really building out our service to veterans in and around the Boston area. Um, we're also engaging in a lot of different ways around, um, you, you know, providing providing sort of traditional poverty law services in Boston and Hartford and Stamford here in Newark and all the way down the eastern seaboard to D.C., uh, which is incredible. And I think we're going to continue to sort of expand on a few key areas, including, for example, um, doing landlord-tenant law, um, ideally doing some kind of work to help people with benefits issues, um, of course, maintaining our longstanding um, asylum practice, and of course, maintaining our commitment to defending and advancing civil and constitutional rights when the when the need arises. That's fantastic. It uh, definitely sounds like there's a lot going on, and we look forward to <laughs> seeing how it all turns out. Um, and it sounds like you have a lot of rewarding things in your future. So, if you had a magic wand. What is one thing that you would change about law firm pro bono or access to justice? So I think I would just put more money into legal services generally. <laughs> I don't know if, that can, if that's within the question that you're asking, but I think that's what's really necessary. I mean, I think there's no question that pro bono law firm, pro, pro bono programs at law firms are critically important and can really build out what the legal services infrastructure is able to accomplish. But there's no substitute for dedicated, trained professionals whose job it is to, to meet the needs of, of those who are marginalized or otherwise unable to access um, justice. That's great. Um, yeah, I th definitely think that fits with the end because with the bigger resources you have, the more you can do. So uh, who is your pro bono role model and why? I, I mean, I think, like, there's so many amazing people doing this kind of work um, that it's hard to narrow it down. I mean, I think in terms of, like, lawyer heroes, there's also a lot of them. I mean, there's there's literally there's so many people in so many different parts of the country um, doing critically important, to it, critically important work to advance um, equity and justice and all of those good things that it's hard to pick one or two. Yeah, sometimes you say um, it's hard to pick it because it's kind of like picking your favorite child when everyone is doing right? so great. It's hard to narrow it down to just one. Right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, so thank you for joining me today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Well, thank you for having me. It was really fun to talk about some of this. New and archive episodes of the podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. Please take a moment to leave an Apple Podcast review. It is quick and easy to do. We would appreciate the feedback and would help make it easier for other listeners to find the show and expand the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, feedback, and questions to pro bono at probonoinst.org.